You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everybody. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that follows in the footsteps of our in-store calendar. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area, from where we continue to feature the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the spring season. As many of you know, City Lights is a publishing house as well as a bookstore. We continue to publish new work in the areas of poetry, literature and translation, and nonfiction with a progressive political outlook. It is especially auspicious when we are able to celebrate the launch of one of our own books. As such is the occasion this evening, we are thrilled to have with us D.S. Marriott celebrating the publication of his new book, Before Whiteness. It is number 21 in the Spotlight Poetry Series published by City Lights Books. D.S. Marriott is a poet and scholar originally from Nottingham, England. He's the author of several poetry collections and chapbooks. These include Incognito, Hoodoo Voodoo, The Bloods, and In Neuter, amongst others. In his critical and creative work, Mr. Marriott draws on post-colonial thought and the currents found in the work of such great thinkers as Franz Fanon. Mr. Marriott is a leading theorist of Afro-pessimism and his critical books include On Black Men from Edinburgh University and Columbia University Presses, Haunted Life from Rutgers University Press, and Wither Fanon Studies in the Blackness, of being from Stanford University Press. He has taught at numerous universities. We're very, very honored to be able to publish this book and to have him here with us tonight. Joining D.S. Marriott in conversation is none other than Frank Wilderson III, no stranger to City Lights. Frank Wilderson III is a writer, dramatist, filmmaker, and critic. He is a full professor of drama and African-American studies at the University of California in Irvine. He is the author of numerous books. These include Red, White, and Black, Cinema and the Structure of U.S. Antagonisms, also Incognito, A Memoir of Exile and Apartheid, and his most recent, Afro-Pessimism. He has received numerous honors for his work, including the Eisner Prize for Creative Achievement, the Maya Angelou Award for Best Fiction, and an American Book Award, amongst others. Professor Wilderson has been described as one of the key and first writers in the tradition of Afro-Pessimism. Before we begin, I'd like to inform you, we're going to be posting links with which you may purchase copies of Before Whiteness. It is a great honor and a special occasion for us to have both D.S. Marriott and Frank Wilderson gracing our virtual halls. A very, very warm, warm welcome to you both. To get our program started, I'd like to welcome now Garrett Caples to say a few words. He is the poetry editor at City Lights Books and the curator of the Spotlight Poetry Series. Welcome, Garrett. Thank you, Peter. I just wanted to say hello to everyone and thank you for coming. And uh, thank, uh, thank David and Frank for, uh, for this event, which I've been looking forward to for a long time. We've, uh, we're coming back off of a hiatus due to the pandemic in terms of the series, and nothing I can think of is a better uh, relaunch of the Spotlight series than Diaz Marriott's Before Whiteness. So thank you both for, uh, for being here, and I turn it over to you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Garrett and Peter and David. It's great to be back with you again. And as I said to you all before, um, 
I've just got got negative from COVID, but um, still have the afterglow, if I can call it that. So if I end up sounding like Mickey Mouse doing Mussolini, please forgive me. Um, I'm going to start asking you, David, first of all, this is absolutely a wonderful work of poetry. It's haunting the metonymy combined with the metaphoric language is just it's just brilliant and but also this how one person's psyche can live with this for sustained 114 pages is also extremely remarkable so thank you for writing this and, and getting it out there for us listen i want you to if you would wouldn't mind you and i share a kind of hero in the late great Dambutsu Marichara. And maybe you could say a little, maybe you could read that poem uh, that you ended with in memory of Dambutsu Marichara. And then I'm sure more people on screen are uninitiated with respect to who he is and why he was so important. Maybe you could say a little bit about that when you're, when you're done. Well, uh, first of all, before I begin, I want to uh, thank Peter, Jarrett, and, and Chris at City Lights. It's, uh, it's a great honor for me to be uh, part of the Spotlight series, and I'm very glad that City Lights have, have managed to uh, survive the recent pandemic and come back even stronger than before. So congrats to them, and thank you, Frank, for um, agreeing to be my interlocutor for this, for this evening. So. Before I answer your question, I just want to say something about why Marichera um, matters to me, but I'm going to say it via talking about your work too. So, um, yeah, so Marichera marries, matters to me because of the, uh, the cadences of his speech. I mean, he, uh, he's a Zimbabwean writer, kind of contemporary avant-garde writer, who was, doesn't seem to fit in it anywhere. He's kind of a a kind of misfit, which I made him immediately attractive to me, but also like you, I mean, like, uh, you know, um, I like the cadences of your speech too. And what I like about Marichir is also what I like about you. Insofar as the syntax, which he uh, manifests in his writing is always on the move. It's always written, riven with uh, ambiguity. And uh, even though people reduce him to, um, to certain fixed positions like they reduce your work. I think what is more interesting about the work is precise because it resists such fixed positioning. So um, in terms of personal narrative, I uh, first came across his work when I used to hang out in London in Covent Garden at the Africa Center, which used to be in Covent Garden. And Marichera also used to hang out there, but you know, he always used to get thrown out there because he was a kind of unpalatable drunk at times and uh, rather a bit like me. And, and in that sense, he, uh, he, he was uh, notorious in the Africa Center for always turning up and then being kicked out shortly afterwards. But I, nonetheless, the writing is full of life and it carries a sort of kind of transgressive punctuation, which takes me back to the question of syntax. You just can't place this writing. It's full of energy. It's full of revolutionary capacity. And I, I kind of love it. So um, the reason why I call this poem uh, Clash City Poets is not only in honor of Marichair, but also in honor of that moment in my life when I was listening to The Clash, walking up and down the streets of London and uh, listening to punk music. So this is Clash City Poets is a song by The Clash, in case you didn't know it, an English punk rock band. And so this is from Marichair. Yes, 
Grey skies when the typewriter can only write failure and the high syllables hiss like rain in the traps, the indifferences or sorrows virtual and not the pages on the table before us, the catastrophe endless as the sea. Yes, the smell of rain in the air as water makes the world legible before the damp wood in a heap at the door reminds us of the first moments forever sought, forever lost. The rise and fall asking to be marked like the slit ears of a slave. That part about a choice we can believe in, dying for inertia when pleasure or arisal has no scale, like traffic when every direction is undeserving and what will not change is change itself. Wading through the rivers to the scented reed banks as rain ponders me like a sister, reckless blood. How imprisoned we are, how fastened, everywhere scanned through apertures, waiting days to sleep, without the means to step into the world, without the strength to escape it, without anything but a peephole into who we are. Here with notebooks in hand, the rain greets us the way people used to do, the smell of it receding on the headland thick with burnt limbs. And miss that rejoined to a serviceable truth. In cinders also, as a city covers our footprints and we reach the other shore, soon the feeling that beauty is never as beautiful as we are now. But it should have been you beside me and not the ones who betrayed her. The sea he yo who stonewalled every question we asked. The poets who quarrel no more. The bridesmaids who sailed into the black sleep of Neverland and listed all the sins, bringing us down to earth. Thank you, David. Really quite terrifying and beautiful at the same time. And um, I like what you said about Merachara because you know, those are precisely the kinds of things that, that drew me to him. I, you know, when I uh, first encountered his work in the um, early 1980s, of course, I, I hadn't, I wasn't in London, I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. When people in New York used to ask me, well, where is that? I would say it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. So, <laughs> but um, what was interesting to me is, is the way in which the writing, for example, at House of Hunger, the short stories, mm. a lot of them take place, they're fiction, but they're kind of fictionalized autobiography of a time in, at Oxford. Mm. Am I right about that? Was it, is it New College in, yeah. at Oxford? New College. And what's very interesting to me is um, the way, even though he was an African, he was an outcast. And maybe this is probably have, have to do with why he got kicked out of these places. You know, the, I remember there's one scene in that book where some of the other African students are either pushing him or, or punching him and saying, you know, come back when you have a country. You don't even have a country. And I really, you know, identified with that as someone without a country, mm. as someone not, you know, from the Western hemisphere without even the hope of a decolonial moment where I could have what Chris Hani in South Africa called a flag and anthem, 
nation. And then, you know, when he writes Black Sunlight, I noticed you have a poem titled that, you know, Black yeah. Sunlight is almost like a, a windowpane acid trip. You know, it's, it's, it's um, but he does have a country and yet he's not connected to it. So yeah. I really, really um, appreciate that in his work. Let me ask you, I wanna move on to another topic before I do. The last poem, another, another burning, you know, I, of course, were you in London uh, when the Grenfell Towers? Yes. Yes. So I want to ask you two things, if you don't mind. It's, it's a rather long poem, but I think it's an extremely important one. I'm wondering if you could read that, but also what you responded to that. Why did you respond through, through poetry as opposed to prose? Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the answer is somewhat paradoxical insofar as, you know, sometimes words just simply aren't enough. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean the kind of words which are kind of always swallowed up by kind of meaning, everyday words which get swallowed up. And, uh, you know, this is both the uh, problem I have with... Uh, philosophy or, or theory, and also the kind of redemptiveness I find in poetry. When you, when I turn to poetry, I feel like everything I've engaged in, in terms of teaching or reading is a simulacrum, it's false. It's just pure semantics. When I engage in poetry, something takes place, which is resistant to meaning, disorganizes it, without ever landing in a place somewhere else. And that to me is actually proper mourning. It's not, you know, when you're when when something disturbs you and you make sense of it straight away, it hasn't really landed. The thing about Grenfell, it as an event, like the Newham fires, which which was when I was younger, is that they kind of don't leave any room for thought. They kind of grab you, they they kind of jump inside your psyche, and they, they don't ever amount to a minus or a plus. They just simply are. Events and uh, poetry, I think, for me, is um, what's what's I'm trying to say. It it doesn't conform to clarity, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it brings out brings something else to play, and it doesn't conform to analysis or thought, or even thought about language. It just actually poetry is an event, and in that sense. When you're trying to memorialize something, and I have several elegies in this poem about people I've known and people I've missed terribly, it seems to me that poetry is allows me to say certain things without really wondering about whether it means anything. Do you know what I'm saying? And, you know, as soon as something means something, it's almost as if you've reduced it to something it's not. And that to me is problematic, politically, morally, psychologically. I don't want to produce something as a testament to something which has happened. I want to actually bear witness, but without a product. And uh, in that sense, poetry to me is a more honest engagement with language than that of analysis. I mean, I, I, I'm making these kind of sharp distinctions here, but I wasn't writing critique. 
I'm trying to get inside certain words, certain experiences, which I heard about, read about, was confronted with in terms of being in London, being uh, uh, there during the time. So, um, yeah, uh, this poem is, and the, the motif of fire is obviously prevalent throughout. It's really not about making a statement about Grenfell. It's about trying to, uh, in a sense, write something which is beyond it, undoes it, deconstructs it, but doesn't really produce it as yet another metaphor, if that makes any sense. That's extremely helpful. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm going to just read this. And uh, it is a long poem. And it does, um, for those people who don't know the Grenfell tragedy, it's a tower block which was uh, burned down in minutes. And people were advised to go back into the building by the fire and police services, even though the building was on fire. And even, and even though they'd made it to the ground, and then the people obviously went back into that building, were, were subsequently died. So it's a kind of public catastrophe, an institutional catastrophe, which not only generates skepticism, but kind of just disbelief, and still does generate kind of disbelief. So how do you account for that, um, is one of the questions. I think that needs to be accentuated. Yeah. While it was, because I, I looked at videos and things like that, but people who might not even know anything about it, you know, while it was burning, the fire department told people to go back in. That's that's yeah. where it needs to be like emphasized. Um, yeah. And the other thing is that there's an image for, for me, um, having spent a fair amount of time in the 1980s uh, in the Maghrib, the image of the Moroccan slippers, which appears in your poem here. Maybe you could tell the uninitiated audience a little bit about the racialization of the towers because this is what was really also very important about it yeah 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 so i mean the reason why it, um you can imagine it was kind of the the all the public ordinances in terms of fire safety in terms of building safety were kind of ignored um this is a public social housing as the the us would say and it's primarily for people of color um, but within that term, people of color, it's not precise enough. I mean, uh, there's a whole range of people, artists, workers, uh, mothers, families. And, uh, you know, so the Grandfall Tower, um, which is a huge tragedy, not only because of uh, the uh, kind of mismanagement of public housing, but also because, you know, the people uh, who are in it are, you know, vulnerable in so many different ways. So it's a housing really primarily for immigrant uh, immigrant. Uh, uh, people's generations and uh, yeah and they were told to go back in even though palpably you know this James Baldwin thing why would you integrate yourself into a burning house kind of resonated yes. uh, with me uh, in terms of this uh, poem but another burning and another burning obviously does refer to uh, kind of history of American kind of burnings too so another burning this paper is on fire being human as it incinerates itself lit from within, as if being of earth was itself to be earth. A shock, a final purifying stroke, lighting up the most dangerous approach, descending. This paper is on fire, and the earth is a room inside the flames, incinerari, breathed like a rope of air, where we took our final faltering steps, down smoke-filled stairs, down narrow corridors, a roaring in our ears, open-mouthed, blind-sided, our throats already burning from the portrayal. 
And I, like you, among the mute, the breathless, the price taken denials, never promise enough. Every stumbling step a forest you struggle through, waiting, penned in. Can't you hear it approaching? The crumbling columns of desuetude, the summits heaving, sweating, out surprising wisps of air. Like an exhalation rushing over rags, you roadmen doused and sussed, uttering the tolls for the longest journey. Like a word falling easily through inflamed lips. Blackness wasn't in the language. We saw it being evacuated, but we still inhabited the ashes. The obscure, obsolescent threshold never entered, already neglected, never spotted, never grasped. The impasse, unable to go up or down, and the prosaic light of faith tiptoeing to catastrophe. Words falling ever downwards, the air on fire. And as we stumble forward, a vacuum, we breathed in its ferocity. To fall like a word, a word not yet fallen, but burning, separated, unable to cross from landing to safety. A fall that has not yet happened, the breath that you don't own is not yours to breathe. Hear them, the long-doomed Iftar, the already ashen Balari, and in the black smoke, a discarded Balga left lying in the ruins. Each sentence, sentence meaningless as tall, burning buildings loom, and time ceases, staggered by fear and shame. A story in each story, each falling. The story is the story within the building, built and charred names. At the end of the day, dust settling breathed in as each gaze turns away and there's nothing to distinguish a tower from an incinerated outline. This paper is on fire, lifted out into the void, into lives lived without air. The unknown heights recognized in rooms where there is no emergency exit. There's no trace, for here everything is lost, trapped without rescue. And each room is a cliff where we are perched on a rim of burning flame. And each door is a vista where we shall be shipped back to the blaze, brought back to the unknown shore like birds returning back to unachieved seas the untold dis of our four fallen airs transported from earth into air. And the fire breaking in waves, a sea from which we are never meant to be rescued or leave, every sentence and a station of the last, a buckle that stays because it can't be grasped. Still, the stout tower stood there, still beyond mere sorrow, beyond what may be told, and what may be not, beyond the burning calms and each soul a window illumined by the petrifying repasts. And each and every breathed out word reflected on the melting surfaces, the spines of what will survive us, both scaffold and shipwreck, as the more dangerous stories become air and violet moths and each spark an oblivious brute annulment of the white glare of departure. 
whiteness the height that reigns and sets to right the rightness in gloried leavened as we breathe as we flame out burnt to a crisp incinerari the whiteness of place unplaced beyond language the last refuge of loss and the unburned waiting awaited word cast out without hope or arrival this paper is on fire where even names go missing and the earth's lapsed burnt out symbol is a medium a building its cladding explodes here over tumbling heaven-drenched air this paper burns itself it ascends over the words black shadowless stains and what it unveils it eradicates the lives lifelessly resident in unlived places where no one wants to live towering over what ceases in the flames the child remains rising beyond thresholds of belonging and living incinerari it rapidly cro crosses the open that remains inside the ear that crosses or passes on blackness sifted blanched let go dumped left in dismay this paper is on fire it cannot breathe it will crumble into dust like a building that forms itself into a word the tap tapping of an ashen wing that frees itself from everything that is air oh my unhoused chevalier become a weightless slave that no room confines and no refuge as if fire were speaking itself the word due expectant but so ruinously unplanned a kind of death trap for the word owing the grasp in order to never be grasped by the ungrasped always suspended freed from descent as well as any rescue lived for the paper unwilling for you and i descent meant rescue but there was black smoke all around us and our mistake was in thinking that language meant expectancy or survival and not something endlessly abandoned evacuated a word petrified then cracked a void endlessly imprinted shaped into concrete thank you very very much i um I want to come back to um, some things that you said when you're introducing this poem, but I want to just really accentuate these last lines because it's going to lead us into another set of questions I have for you about poetry and politics. Um, you know, our mistake was in thinking that language meant expectancy or survival. <laughs> I mean, that's one of those David Marriott lines where you just had to put the book down and go walk outside. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like Fanon says, a, a splinter in the eye of the world. You know, I mean, that, I mean, really what that undoes is the entire kind of edifice of counter hegemony upon which rests, you know, performance studies and so much uh, of literary studies, even though it's not about that. 
it's it's a very powerful line. I, I want to ask you a couple of things about this poem. I don't know how many people have it, but the way it works on the page is uh, very interesting. If you think about a tall public housing building mm -hmm. that is burning and people are trying to escape because um, for one thing, the organization, or, or should I say, um, disarray, the dispersal of the way the words work on the page are, are much like the dispersal of people trying to flee a burning building. So that's <clears throat> that, that struck me. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the way the stanzas are, are kind of tiered makes me think of stairs and mm. trying to get down the stairs as as it's burning. But at the same time, as you as you said earlier, none of this conforms to uh, clarity. It's mm. more effective uh, than, than, than anything else. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. So what was what, what went into your what do you what do you want to say about how this came about? I'm really curious if you want to say anything else about that. Uh, well, the uh, the you could say many things. I, I suppose. I mean, I, you know, never trust an author about his work. That's the first point. Uh, the uh, the uh, the the question about the writing of it is an interesting one because um, you know when you're writing a piece about catastrophe, say personal, political, social. The key, I think, for those people out there who are poets is not to go for maximization, but to pare away until you're, you pare away, you, you literally carve away until you come up with the, the essence, the essence of what you wanna say. So it's not about presence, it's about a kind of essence. You cannot never recapture the presence of something like Grenfell or something like 9-11, which is also a huge building where people, you know, kind of get, trying to get down. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so, you know, the idea is there's those poems which trying to occupy the mindset of the people or try and present themselves as if they were there, that's just false. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's your own compensation for not being there, and it's kind of false, unnecessary, irrelevant, I would say. So how you write about catastrophe is the question. Now, you know, you do this yourself in your own work. I mean, so, you know, there's a trope in your work, in your work, Frank. I mean, I'm going to bring it out there because, you know, this is just as much about you as me. And where you talk about the end of the world, which you in turn borrowed from Fanon's reading of a poet who I'm very dear to my heart, Aimé Césaire, who writes the Cahiel Notebook of the Return to My Native Land. And when you talk about the um, end of the world, which is also a terroristic kind of notion, the point is, isn't some kind of end. No, that's that's a consolatory thinking. The point is what it would mean to imagine the end of the world from a black perspective. And that is where the radicality and the transgressiveness of that notion comes from. And um, because, you know, black, blackness has never been in the world. Yeah, exactly. So to present that it brings an end to the world is, I think, legitimate question because why would you want to occupy a world which doesn't include you similarly you know with this building which becomes a metaphor of the world in a sense the the this this idea of expectation that you will be rescued is a is a kind of, again a kind of false consolatory notion 
And, uh, and you know, one could argue that they were sent back precisely because they were people of color. Yeah. It's hard to deny that. I mean, that's, that's that. And so when you're dealing with that kind of notion, you don't want the reader to come away from this scene, this event and thinking, oh, they're just, it's just yet another tragedy. No, there's something singular about these things. And any poem worth its salt is able to capture that kind of singularity and bring it to life, literally bring it to life. The people have gone, people are absent. So, you know, when you talk about the end of the world, how I read it as in the way you write it, and again, I'm talking about the cadences of your syntax, you're not talking about escape, consolation, you're not talking about a utopia, which can somehow be a better place. All those are false consolations. You really are forcing us to think about what it means to literally not be in the world, and that is your only being. Exactly, exactly. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose something to you, which is very unfair, because it's a question that's been asked of me, and I've, I've always given glib answers to it. You, you know, along, one thing I will say to you, so, so thank you for the compliments about my book. I want to, I want to say something to you about, about the opening part of, of, of uh, what, I, what I didn't write in Afro-Pessimism, uh, which was, it opens with the psychotic episode where I'm trying to get myself you know, up the, up the, up the hill to the Tang Center psych ward <clears throat> back in. And um, I had actually gone back and tried to get the, the psychiatric appraisal uh, records, to, which, which, you know, listening to you talk now, I'm so glad that UC Berkeley uh, psych ward told me this happened in 2000, and it's now 2018, and we destroy all the records after 10 years because um, that meant I wasn't sure why I had that murderous breakdown. I wasn't absolutely sure what precipitated it, and I had to write about it anyway, which I think made it better than if I found out what the actual psychiatric evaluation had been at the time. One thing I will say, it was in a period which I've been introduced to two things, two books that, that haunted me, uh, one was yours on black men. It's going back a while now. That's uh, over 20 years old, man. Well, that was the year. Yeah. And, and, you know, as a dedicated Gramscian, it was, it was uh, horrifying to um, juxtapose the implications of what you were saying. You know, and it comes out in this in this in this book here because I, there, the, it, you know, kind of implicit in Gramscian logic is a sense that the production of language is kind of the seizure of the tools of hegemony, and the reappropriation of those tools of hegemony are the very first step in an emancipatory progression. And in in this book, in, you know, right here in very profound ways, the ways in which violence and language are juxtaposed continuously gives us no sense that language and discourse and counter-hegemonic struggle is the key 
to black liberation. Now I've got that down pat now because I, I theorize it myself. But at that particular moment, that was earth shattering to me. The chapter on Fanon and the and the lynching chapter. So yes, <laughs> you want to say something about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm, gl- I'm grateful for you to remind uh, for that uh, comment. Um, and there's uh, reminders of how you know it's been a long road we've been on, Frank. I mean. When I first arrived in the U.S., you know, there wasn't there weren't many friends around, and and you and Jared were kind of stand stand up in the way in which you looked out for me, and I'm very grateful for that, uh, both theoretically, politically, and and obviously personally. So I just want to put that on the record. Um, Likewise, uh, but you know, I mean, yeah, it's been a long road, and we've been. Uh, kind of talking to one another on and off for a while, but you're not always to, together, but, you know, from a distance. So uh, the question of, uh, of, yeah, the revolution in language and black poetic language will not come about by black poetic language being simply commodified and being consumable like every other kind of language. Black language needs to be a different kind of language. It needs to be an anti-language in that sense. It needs to start from where language ends or becomes impossible. And that to me is where it begins. That's the only kind of black poetry I'm interested in. And let's face it, not many black poetries are written from that place. Yes, yes. So, you know, I mean, and all the ideas that follow from that, I'm not here to communicate anything. I'm not here to communicate. I'm not here to mean anything. For me, blackness doesn't mean shit. It puts into doubt and into question everything. And that's why it's slaughtered, terrorized, imprisoned everywhere it goes. Because precisely there's no meaning which is equivalent to it. And you know, when Marx is talking about reification of the commodity in the first volume of Capital, you know, the reason why the language poets always thought that was an interesting moment is because they, they thought that, you know, language could be freed from commodification, not realizing that that kind of freedom was itself hyper-commodification. Was What I'm interested in is something com- completely different, a critique of language per se, a critique of language as a kind of world, a worlding of, of whiteness and, one, and, and a worlding which excludes blackness. And to me, you know, there's not, I, when I read people like Cesare and what he does with syntax, and I want, when I read people like you, it forces me to think about syntax and language differently. Then I see something happen. And there's a kind of double marking because, you know, not only are you forced to think differently about concepts, but you're also forced to think about the articulation of difference itself in a way which doesn't reduce it to the same. And poetry, to me, is that articulation. It is a beyond, which cannot be reduced to the same. And uh, that's its political revolutionary potential, which is truer, if you like, than identity, presence, and authenticity. And a lot of people, you know, think that that's uh, um, um, a kind of out there notion, but I, I, I mean, or even an avant-garde notion, no. F the avant-garde. I'm not really interested in, the, in being avant-garde. I'm just being witness to what I see to be the reality of the situation. If you're going to rescue blackness from its place in the world, 
you have to rescue it from the language which places it in that world. It's just a simple point. Yeah, it, and, and you know, it, it kind of makes me wonder. I'd, I'd always like to go back in time and and kind of see how Singor and Césaire occupied the same space uh, because those are two very different kinds of negritudes. And I just I'd like to be a fly on the wall to see, you know. Because Césaire speaks to me. I, I carried that book, Return to My Native Land, around with me all through high school, all through college. And I just wanted to be that guy and do that thing. And and he was saying everything to me that I couldn't say out loud. And then I read Senghor, and I thought, these two people are of the same movement? I don't I don't get it at all, you know? They are of the same movement, but they come from radically different places. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I've not heard many people who, I mean, uh, Senghor tries to sound like somebody like Claudel or, or, or Sam Pierce or some, some these kind of oratorical French poets. Yeah. And, and he basically, he's just got African content, but he sounds like he's on the left bank declaiming lyricism with there. My God, I mean, you know, the syntax is dangerous, it's edgy, you just can't make sense of it. It brings into the text things which you don't imagine can be brought into relation with one another. And it's beyond and behind anything you can think of. It forces you to rethink everything you thought about black writing. I mean, to me, that's, wow. I, I can remember reading this there for the first time and thinking, I do not understand what that hell is talking about but there's something here which is so exciting and so compelling that i'm i'm just grateful that it exists i am too i am too and before we go to the questions i'm going to put two quotes in the chat hopefully they'll go into the chat oops i don't seem to i don't seem to be able to cut and paste so i'm, I'm just going to read to um well, maybe I wonder. I wonder if uh, no, it would probably be too much labor to make me a co-host. I I want to come back to this question of poetry and and politics, and um, I was rereading uh, W. S. Merwin's uh, 1967 book of poems, The Lice, which he wrote uh, kind of in response to the moment of the heavy escalation of the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, urban unrest coming off five years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and since I can't put this in the in the chat as a quotation, as as a, as a cut and paste, I'm just going to preface my remarks by saying that this is going to be followed by a quote about your work, and I think that these two quotes are talking about how to be a poet in the political, but in a very different way. So in this introduction to, to the reissue of his 1967 book, The Lice, I'll try to read it very slowly. Merwin um, says, poets have been known to be smug about their fine uselessness, but the Vietnam War led many poets of my generation to try to use poetry to make something stop happening. We will never know whether all that we wrote shortened that nightmare by one hour, saved a single life, or the leaves of one tree, but it seems unthinkable to many of us not to make the attempt 
and not to use whatever talent we had in order to do it. In the process, we produced a great many bad poems, but our opposition to that horror and degradation was more than an intellectual formulation and sometimes tapped depths of bewilderment, grief, rage, admiration that took us by surprise. Occasionally, it called forth writings that may be poems after all. Okay, so my, my, I'll, I'll leave the witness by saying that my point is that, as moving as that is, I also think that that comes out of this whole kind of context that we talked about before, kind of free your mind and your ass will follow, a sense that, that this work of art can be a contribution to a counter-hegemonic struggle that can bring about some kind of meaningful change in society. So that's where I was going to pitch that at. And then we got John Wilkinson, who wrote about your work. And it goes like this. Reading Marriott's poetry permits no release into the ludic, the self-ironizing into noir ripples of linguistic reflexivity. It asks me, and he's a white person, it asks me where I stand, but not in the sense of demanding or taking for granted a political allegiance. That would seem frivolous, cost-free. When this poetry registers slavery, to which it returns as a dynamic constituent of every moment's experience historically, psychologically, and philosophically, I am forced to know that for me to figure myself as anti-racist would be ridiculous. But for me to figure myself abjectly as racist would be a disgrace. And I just think that that juxtaposing those, you know, there, there, there's a sense in Merwin's that a someone is listening, which no black any any person that's told to go back into a burning building can't have a sense that they embody consent to be abrogated, you know. And there's a sense here in Wilkinson's writing about your work of all the things that you've just said. I, that's that's all I'm trying to say. I'm, you know, yeah, I, I mean. Uh there's a kind of pointed disparity between the two. So when Merwin says that, you know, you write poems to try and stop things happening. And uh, for Wilkinson, that in itself is a kind of disgrace. Yes. That very position. Yeah, you, they're, they're not compatible positions. But the reason is why they're not compatible, that's the interesting, difficult question. So, you know, the Merwin thing to stop things from happening reminds me of that Auden quote, which is, you know, in his response to the Spanish Civil War and all the rest of it, which is that poetry makes nothing happen. That's what Auden says in terms of political revolution of his own poetry and his own identifications as a Marxist poet. And he says, no, poetry makes nothing happen. But the thing is, uh, it depends where you put the accent when you're reading, thinking about that line. I mean, most people read it as, uh, uh, place the emphasis on the word happen. Mm. Whereas uh, I place the emphasis on the word nothing. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, if you make nothing happen, that's because, you know, poetry is not being distracted by what it is not. Poetry isn't going to stop people running back into a burning building if that's what they're told to do. But poetry, you know, is a way of, in a sense of, forcing our attention to the question, the question of certain words, and in in a way which forces you up against the signifying possibilities of each word, which forces us to think about the world anew. So the nothing is the biggest thing poetry can do, because there's nothing but 
uh, poetry in terms of thinking about, I would say, the cost, the price, the calculation of certain assertions. Now, I think Wilkinson is right to say that, I mean, I'm not saying he's right in terms of my poetry, but he's, he's right to say that, you know, there are certain forms of pleasure which we get from reading poetry, which are in a, is in a sense a distraction, which allows you to consume it. Mm-hmm. And in a sense that there's certain poetry that written, is written explicitly against that kind of pleasure. And that used to be a, you know, the kind of, what's the word, the kind of traditional way in which the avant-garde justifies itself. We don't, we're not interested in pleasure. We want to educate you. We want to change the world, but, but, which is the Merwin point. But yeah. no, I think there's another way of thinking about pleasure and about the pleasure in the nothing that poetry offers us, and which to me is just about language, about language. So what poetry offers you is nothing but language. And that's, the, that's its strength and its weakness. But mm-hmm. you know, in that sense, it's the strongest thing, in my view, and also the weakest thing. But the point is that you can't simply bypass it and go somewhere else, concept, history, politics. No, poetry forces you up against your attentiveness as a person. And you know, there's no escape. When somebody says, hey, you, Mm-hmm. You have to attend to it. And, uh, you know, the texts which do that for me most are poems. I mean, uh, funnily enough, they are poems and they matter to me in ways which philosophy, say, or political theory could never uh, matter because they bring me up against the force of certain significations and they force me to think about it. And because I cannot dominate these significations, I cannot reduce them to something else. I cannot make a statement about them which makes them make sense, which to me is when the reading of poetry stops. So, yeah, poetry makes nothing happen, and that is its great contribution to to revolution. (laughs) Well, thank you. I'm going to ask you now, uh, I know they're probably wanting us to go to to the audience, but... uh, Mm -hmm. You know, as I said, uh, when I first came, uh, I'd been at Berkeley in 1970 as a, as a teenager, but yeah. 97, um, 96, 97, go to school. I was really a dedicated Negrian, Gramscian, and, you know, having done these workshops for the Communist Party and underground cells and political education in South Africa. And so one of the things that Sadia Hartman would say to me when she would read early chapters of Red, White, and Black Shoes, you're not staying in the hold of the ship. In other words, you're trying to find that redemptive denouement in some way, you know, which, and so this is what really astounded me as an early graduate student about your work and her work. And I'm just gonna say, Jared and I used to talk about this all the time. I once said to him, I was really jealous of a professor who had written like five books in five years. And, you know, I, I, <clears throat> it's just hard. I get pains, physical pains, when I engage my next book in these, this material. And Jared says, you know, well, the costs of engaging the concepts that come about through Afro-pessimism and other types of Black studies are just a lot higher than the costs of say being a Marxist critical theorist or a Marxist poet. And so, but we've always marveled at what you 
This is a projection now, so take it for what it is. <laughs> as though you don't, as though you're such a superman, you don't pay the cost, you know, because you're so, you've written five books of poetry, which have remained in the home. It, that's like in almost 15 years. So it's like three, it's like a book every three years. You're prolific in this material as a critical theorist. Um, I will tell you personally, the costs psychically for me have been very, very high. And I don't really know how I deal with it. Do you have anything to say about that for you? Uh, <laughs> Frank, I do love you, you know. I mean, regardless of your your suffering, um, uh, but you know, each work uh, represents a struggle um, with knowing what to say. And, and in attempting to say what you don't know, I mean, it's not, these works are not about saying what I think I know, they're about struggling to name what I do not know. And in that sense, it's an ongoing problem. It's like an itch, which you can never scratch. Uh, in a sense, writing to me is a kind of, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, hmm. It's kind of a road which can never really be traveled. So even though I may well publish i don't ever feel satisfied where i end up on that road um it's kind of suffering is actually in the incompletion of each project not in the actual writing of it if you know what i mean yes, yes. Uh, and so uh you know it's not about accomplishment actually it's not it's about um realizing one's limits in every work you undertake and realizing, funnily enough, that that limit is irreducible. So, yeah, I understand what you're saying in terms of being in the hold. Actually, you know, I know my way around the boat. I've sailed a bit. And, uh, you know, being in the hold is not where I prefer to be um, when I'm sailing um, or being on a boat. I like to look out onto the horizon, funnily enough. But, you know, um, the thing about poetry or even indeed theoretical work is uh, that... Um, you're never really capable of knowing what you're doing in the first place. So the writing of it is a kind of, you know, people used to talk about Fanon as kind of every, his work, he's a skin himself. Mm -hmm. It's like a skinny, a flame, a flame. So that kind of word is, is really what I'm talking about. And so I don't think of each work as a fulfillment or indeed as a narcissistic exercise, which is where, you know, that could easily this narrative could easily go, oh, you write so much because you're so driven to being print. No, actually, I, I write not, I don't think I write a lot. I think I write the same thing, but the same problem never gets really answered. Mm -hmm. And um, from the beginning to the end, each book seems to cancel out the previous one, which is probably why I then need to write out another one. But there's no symmetry between those works. I mean, you've written memoirs, and theory and now you've written what is it memoir as theory so to me it suggests that your question is about a kind of self-revelation whereas my drive is to actually efface my any trace of myself from every work i do ah, interesting yeah i just just want it to i just want the language to be able to speak by itself without any kind of ego any kind of passion or pleasure 
or fantasy. I just want the language to be able to speak by itself in an absolute sense. Um, without me, without me. So when I, until I achieve that, then I'm going to carry on scribbling, I'm afraid. Okay, great. <clears throat> My last question. Um, you know, one of the brilliant kind of formal aspects of your work, and it gets it just gets better with each book, is um, <clears throat> something in semiotics called you know facilitation, which is uh, this you know the way the juxtaposition of secondary processes of signification, the way we're speaking to each other now through the conscious, yeah. come together with primary processes of signification. But there's a but in most poets, though, that facilitation is heavily weighted either in a kind of uh, metaphoric method of conveyance or heavily weighted in a metonymic method of conveyance. And I just want to compliment you on the fact that you've got them both down. <laughs> I don't know about down, but thank you anyway. Yeah. And, and you know, I was, I was asking myself, um, because I'm always looking for tricks and how, how does he do that? You know, how does that happen? And one of the things I came to think about was um, the way in which uh, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was in Edward Said's um, uh, graduate work, uh, workshops on cultural studies, there's a, there's a musicality to the way in which he writes and speaks. That's uh, right. And, <clears throat> and I think that and I finally understood that when he did a session on classical music and he played the piano. Um, yes. If I remember correctly, you're a bassist. Yes. And what, what does music playing the bass do for you? It's an open-ended question. Yes, that's a good question. Um, yeah, um, well, you know, uh, funny enough, I've been, I, I, I've written on Saeed recently, so I'm kind of, kind of, interested in, in how he relates to what he calls style via his music and and his interest in classical music but he, he is himself a classical musician so to me he, um it would have been more interesting um, to hear about what he thinks about you know the music of the streets so um which he doesn't ever seem to go there but you know when i when i um yeah that's a good question because you know Look, I pl I played bass and I used to play jazz bass and and uh, you know what I used to love about bass is uh, funnily enough I think bass is and like the drums you know the rhythm sections are the most intellectual forms forms of the of the whatever truth you're talking about because they they provide the analysis and the and the structure. So you know, every you know the people that that then you know the 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 front players who riff off the work you're doing. <laughs> that, that's the fluff, you know. That's the fluff. The really you know the the kind of warring kind of meaty kind of uh, signification takes place in a dialogue between rhythm. The rhythm. I mean, and this is going back to negritude and talk, talking about because negritude and people like saying oh, says they always define black poetry or poetics in terms of rhythmics, rhythmics, a rhythmics which is always hermetic. In other words, you know, how to play that drum is always a hermetic practice. Nobody can simply just sit down and play. It's not a democracy here. We're talking about, you know, somebody who's initiated into a kind of logos, 
in a kind of sacred notion of rhythm can only play the drum. And they and then they communicate that to the populace. And similar with the bass and the, and, and the drumming when I was playing it, they 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 let lay down the logos, which then allows these other, you know, our, you know, fly-by-nighters to kind of perform in front of the audience. And um, you know, if I had my druthers, it, um, I would play bass while I was reading, um, because you know, I think that there's ways in which language, the musicality of language, is actually more about po poesis than it is about kind of meaning or representation or whatever. And I think that's where I would really place my sense of interest in language rather than in, again, communication or necessarily um, in representation. But, you know, I, th I thought I was a good bass player, but I've, I've seen so many good bass players which could put me to shame just from the way they handled their instruments, just handled their instruments, just literally the way they picked them up, played the note. And I thought I was good, but, you know, um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a verb, um, which means critique, which means separate or choose. And the way in which certain people play the bass, it's like going to war. You know, mm -hmm. the way they distinguish, differentiate notes, you have to separate and you have to choose. And there's no way you can play those notes without knowing what you're doing. And, you know, I used to think I was just free associating and free playing. And but that's never been my approach to poetry, by the way. With poetry, it's much more about separating and choosing. This word is not right. This syntax syntax is not right. It's not doing what I need it to be doing. And, um, you know, and that's a harsh choice. You know, you, you throw poems away if it doesn't have that kind of syntactical rhythm, um, which is necessary um, for me to, for poetry to come alive and also for music to come alive. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I've always been attached to the relationship between musicality and and poesis, but you know, I don't know what to really to say about it apart from the fact that um, it's something which um, makes poetry both readable and unreadable for me. Mm -hmm. Like you know, when I'm trying to teach poetry or to younger people, I say to them, just listen to the words. Don't try and tell me what they are. Iambics, dactylics, trochees. Don't do that. Just listen to the words and try and think between the spaces between the words and how they relate to one another from line to line. Once you've done that, learn how to see the words on the page. Learn how to see them because they're there for a reason. And they're not simply just plopped down on the page like you know, a lot of academic prose. And once you've got that, and then sort of talk to me about the meaning. Talk to me why he's using a proposition or a pronoun here and, and an adjective here. And then, then, then we're talking. But until that moment, we're just not talking. We're just, oh yeah, somebody's saying, oh, this is the theme of the poem. This is what it's about. No, that's not reading poetry. That's not reading. <laughs> Blunt. So you need, you need to separate and choose. You need to separate and choose the sounds, the syntax, the phonemes, the rhythms. You need to be able to separate and, and try and put your mind in that of the poet work out where they're coming from. Whoever poet, whatever poet or music we're listening to. But I know, so this, these last two books, I've been very much taken up with British uh, grime music or, 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 you know, drill music. And to me, that's the language of the streets. And uh, it's a language of kind of very complex blackness because, you know, there's a kind of Somalian music and Nigerian music. 
which all gets reduced to black urban music, but it's coming from radically different places, even though they all sound Jamaican. <laughs> so, um, you know, you have to hear, you have to be able to hear the differences in the syntax, in the very syntax. And uh, yeah, that to me is important. And I, I feel like, um, you know, your writing is very much to do with also the materiality of language. It's not simply about thematics. You force us to read the line. And that's all you can ask from a writer. It forces you to read the line and stay with the line until you get to the end of it. And then we can have a conversation. I hear you. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you, David. Let, let's see if uh, Peter wants to come back, if he has something from the People. Yeah, so we've got a few questions. Um, Javier or Xavier, please forgive me for butchering your name, um, asks, first she says, context, Black woman here, then says, witnessing catastrophe and being deemed a catastrophe whittles away at the spirit and psyche without hesitance or reprieve. Where do you locate solace? Yeah. Is that a question to me or to Frank? Uh, it's to you, uh, David. It's to you, David. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah. I, I suppose I locate solace in in being able to bear witness, and knowing that even to bear witness might actually destroy you. That in itself is a kind of solicitation which I think is uh, ethical. So, um, you know, uh, solace without witnessing is just uh, consumerism. Um, but being able to bear witness is the most demanding thing of all. And that's what um, I think is, going back to what we've just been talking about, requires a kind of effort of reading. Um, and uh, catastrophe is, um, is a word which I used, and I regret using that word, because it's just too commonplace. What I'm really talking about is the singularity of certain events, which are radically singular, and uh, there's no real solace to those events. There really isn't. I mean, you can say, oh, that story repeats, that kind of story repeats, that kind of story. There's endless Trayvons, there's endless uh, Grenfells, but that's not really where I start from. I want to bear witness to each and every story each and every event. And that to me is the only kind of solicitation I'm prepared to acknowledge. We also have a question from Lewis. Uh, David, can you please say a bit more about your relationship to, and this is in quote, the redemptive I've found in poetry, unquote. He's quoting you as he remembers it. Okay. This is, leads on from the last question. So um, Frank asked me about the, you know, poetry stopping, stopping, you write poems to stop things from happening. Um, and I'm saying that actually uh, poetry cannot stop things from happening. And that's what makes it valuable um, and redemptive. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the, the point is to, uh, there's a certain kind of attentiveness to language, which is redemptive in itself. And it shouldn't be confused for anything else, politics, philosophy, uh, communication, it, it is actually a form of attentiveness to the other, as other, as a radical antithesis to who you are. 
And when I pick up poems by people who have who are writing about things I know nothing about, that's when that takes place. I'm being forced to attend to things I know nothing about, but which I'm, you know, bearing witness to. And that to me is a kind of redemptive openness uh, to possibilities which I would never have conceived of prior to reading that poem. And then Xavier Havia has um, another question. What other texts do you recommend for Black folks wrestling with these experiences? Oh, God. Uh, Frank, um, do you want to help me out here? <laughs> well, you know, I think that, oddly enough, people should read um, Jared Sexton's Amalgamation Schemes, even though it might seem that it's pointedly dealing with multiracialism as a, as a question. It really helps us understand how in almost any form of enunciation to, to make that statement or that discourse affirmative, it has to have this little grain of sand of anti-blackness inside of it. And I think that's a very profound yeah. book. Yeah, there's some, there's some, I mean, we've mentioned other poets we've, we've, we've talked about too. I mean, uh, so Frank's mentioned Jerry Sexton's book. I, I really, um, in terms of essays, I really like Patricia Williams' um, um, writing, essayistic writing. I also like Toni Morrison's essayistic writing, playing in the dark. Um, the reason why I like these essays is because, again, going back to the cadences of speech, they write so eloquently about places uh, and from places where people don't ordinarily go. And they, uh, and they don't write it in a way which is narcissistic, which is, which is written from their necessarily, you know, their, 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 but they write it in a way which is, shows how language itself becomes marked by certain experiences. And they enable you to not only grasp those experiences, but to grasp it in a way which is, I mean, these are great writers. I mean, just to put it very simply, and they allow you to grasp certain things in ways which are, um, brings you back to language. That's my point. I mean, brings you back to poesis. Even though these are essays, they bring you back to poesis because what I like about the cadences of speech in, uh, in these two writers, these two women writers, is that they, uh, they, they are, the way they move from word to word is an education in itself. It's just an historical and political education. And, uh, you know, at that level, from word to word, um, within a sentence. And uh, there's not many writers who, who do that for me, so I'm just putting that out there. Really beautiful way to articulate it. And I think maybe a, a good place for us to end as we're running out of time, but I, I just wanna thank you both ever so much. I mean, this is such a great honor. I mean, that was a very, very rich discussion and very intimate. It gets, it doesn't get any more intimate than that. I it really, it made it an especially auspicious event tonight and especially for this book release. So I, I am ever grateful to you both for gracing our virtual halls. I only regret we couldn't do this in person and, you know, rain check. Hope we can do it back again live in the store someday. Um, DS Marriott, thank you so much. Frank Wilderson, thank you for doing the honors tonight. Garrett Caples, for knowing a good project when you see one. Uh, many of you don't realize, you know, Garrett is a really great poet in his own right. So uh, really great to have him in the house tonight as well. So. Last but not least, thanks to all of you in the audience for joining us. 
Also want to remind everyone City Lights is now open for business. We're open seven days a week from 12 noon until or until about 8 p.m. in the evening. So come on down, browse our stacks. If you're in the hood, we'd love to see you. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, the publishing program, and the educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So be safe, everyone. Be well. We hope to see you again soon. Uh, David, I'll give you the last word. Well, thank you, Peter. Thanks, everybody at City Lights for making this possible. I mean, uh, City Lights is an institution, as everybody knows. And uh, yeah, I, I cannot I cannot say how much I value that bookstore and that space and what it's produced in terms of poetry. It really is a kind of uh, history in itself, um, which is worth preserving just for the sake of preserving it. Um, and so I'm humbled and uh, I'm very grateful to you, Peter, and to Jarrett and to Frank for making this possible and to everybody who's come here. And I do hope that this Spotlight series can take off again because it has produced so many great works. Frank O'Hara, uh, Ferlinghetti, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on. So, um, yes, it's been a great, it's been a great um, event for me and um, I hope it's been useful to everybody listening. Um, I feel like I... Um, I'm getting rather tearful. I miss San Francisco so much, but um, and and uh, you guys too. So uh, thanks again, and uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we miss you too. Yeah, be well, right. Frank. Be well. Yeah. Congratulations on your book, David. Thank you, Frank. Take care. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.